Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. And welcome back. George Norrie with you along with David Weatherly. David's website is linked up at coasttocoastam.com, erielights.com. David, a few more quick questions about the black-eyed children, then we'll get into Monsters of the Last Frontier. If you do let them in, what has happened to people? Do we have any reports on that? You know, there's very few reports, George. Uh, the tricky thing with this, of course, is that, you know, there are a lot of uh, stories that get posted online, and it's always hard to track many of those people down and, and get an interview or get further details. Uh, there are some claims that, you know, these kids are invited in and, and dire things happen to family members and so forth. Uh, I've had a few accounts that uh, were chronicled in the book from people that I, I was able to interview who had what I would call very close encounters with the kids. You know, maybe they, they reached out and touched them or something like that. And usually the consequences are pretty bad. Uh, but, you know, what always kind of lingers in the back of my mind is, uh, Whitley Strieber said something to me years ago about this phenomenon. He said, mm-hmm. you know, the thing that disturbs me is is how many people have let them in that we don't know about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And that's, uh, that's, you a good know, point. that's kind of an un- unsettling way to think about it, you know, because if these things really are as dangerous as they seem, then, yeah, maybe there are a lot of counts that we just don't hear about. What does your investigative gut tell you about this? I mean, are they beings that are, are uh, trying to trick us, looking like children? What What do you think's going on? Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't believe for a moment that they're children. I think that they're. Uh, I think they're entities from uh, another level of existence. A, a dark uh, dimension. Another, another dimension, yeah. And, you know, uh, even a few years ago, that would have sounded far-fetched, but with what quantum physics is learning now, you know, the quantum sciences are explaining are exploring all these concepts of other levels of existence. And, uh, you know, there you go. If, if there's uh, something there that can get over here, maybe they're coming over to test the waters or to... Uh, who knows what they're doing? A lot of the cases lead me to believe that they're, they're coming over here because they feed off of emotion. They feed off of fear because so many of the cases, George, they they produce this intense level of fear in the witness or the victim, if you will. And when that peak is kind of reached, these kids disappear. So it's it's sort of, okay, mission accomplished. Absolutely. Monsters of the Last Frontier. How did you key in on Alaska? You know, actually, George, this is part of a series. This is the third state that I've covered. I I realized at some point how expensive my files were from investigating and doing field work for so many years. And I had spent some time in Alaska. It's it's a very intriguing place. Uh, It came up next on my list to do. Uh, to focus just on the cryptids in that state. And that's what I did. It, I don't know if you've been to Alaska, but it, it's a very intriguing place. It's, never never been up uh, that way. There's something sort of otherworldly about it, in a sense. And uh, while I can't imagine living there because uh, of the cold that, that dominates huh. so much of the year, at the same time, it has a very unique uh, raw beauty. And, you know, the people are, are just wonderful. So uh, when I started delving into the cryptid legends up there, oh, my gosh, you talk about a, a rich body of folklore and, and tons of modern sightings, too. 
And David, the, uh, the the cryptids and legends of Alaska, I mean, they're all over the place, aren't they? They are. They're all over the whole state. And, you know, you have to remember something, George. This is uh, Alaska is the uh, it's the least densely populated state. So right. it's the, know, it's one talking, of the biggest, but it's the least densely populated. It is the, yeah. the largest state. And, I, you know, I always tell people, unless you've been to Alaska, it's hard to really conceive of how big it is. You know, some people look on a map and say, okay, Alaska is way up there. You take, you take the outline of Alaska and lay it over the lower 48, and then you suddenly start to realize we're talking about a lot of territory. It's, it's, it's over 660,000 square miles. Wow. And you could walk to Russia just about. Yeah, you could walk to Russia. And it, it's, it's very rugged territory, you know, so much of it uh, uninhabited. Of course, the people that live there, for the most part, cluster around the major cities and in small villages. Now, when we talk about cryptids and legends of Alaska in the book Monsters of the Last Frontier, give us an overview, first of all, of what kinds of uh, subjects we're talking about. Oh, gosh. So a lot of Sasquatch sightings. Uh, you know, there's there's so much wild territory up there. And these, these accounts go far, far back in the state's history because uh, the native tribes in the region uh, they've talked about these creatures all the way back in their oral traditions. And, you know, Alaska has, has 227 recognized tribes. So, again, that's, that's a lot of different bodies of people. They all have their own terms to describe these, these hairy creatures that live in the wild. Uh, we've got water monsters up there, of course, because... A lot of water in Alaska, you know, it's obviously on the ocean, but freshwater lakes and uh, water in abundance. So a lot of various water creature sightings. Some other strange tales, too, back in the lore. Uh, some of them connect to native traditions, you know. There's there's rumors of a ten-footed bear that seemed to come out of uh, old native lore in the region. Uh, but there's other curious stories. There's legends of living mammoths having wandered Alaska far beyond the time that they purportedly perished. Uh, there are Thunderbird sightings. And then there are a few other curious stories that crop up here and there, like the the Harry Culp story, uh, Harry D. Culp. And, um, oh, gosh, there's uh, <clears throat> Lake Ilyana's uh, monster. What? What? And there's a really weird tale about a town called Portlock or Port Chatham. Yeah, I was going to say, what is that Port Chatham story? Why don't you oh, tell us? Oh, gosh. <laughs> so the story with, with that town was that it, it was a small little cannery town, and it became a, a real place on the map, if you will, in the 1920s when a, when a post office opened in the town. But it really never grew to any significant size. The, the census in 1940 only listed just over 30 residents in the town. And almost all of them were employed in the, at the cannery. So what happens with this town is that it sort of disappears very suddenly because everyone up and moves out. Jeez. And they get spooked or what? Well, <laughs> here we go. The story kind of unfolds over time. And this has been covered pretty well by 
by the press in Alaska. The first mention of significance was in 1973 when the Anchorage Daily News started talking about the, the strangeness of the town. And it said that uh, Portlock just ceased to existence because everyone left. They were afraid of the hairy man that was terrorizing the town. Now, the chronicle of this town goes back to uh, purportedly the first death was in 1931. There was a logger who was working just uh, in the hills outside of the town, and he was found murdered. However, here's the kicker, George. The murder weapon was a piece of log-moving equipment that no human could have lifted. Yet somehow this man was bashed in the head with it. Jeez. So that was the first mysterious thing. But then other strange deaths, uh, you know, and some of this, it's very difficult to sort out, of course, all of the exaggerated lore and the real incidents, because there are stories of hunters finding 18-inch footprints in the snow around the village. There are, there are stories of hunters going up into the hills and never returning, but... Uh, this is kind of gruesome. Pieces of their body washing down. Oh my God! In the in the water, and the markings the villagers said were were nothing like a a bear would have done. So, what really becomes fascinating about the story is that in uh, 2009, the Homer Tribune, uh, a reporter with the paper, ran a story, interviewed a elder who had been born in Port Chatham in the 1930s. And this woman told uh, the stories and said that she remembered her family being terrified and that they all fled, that they left their schools and they, they left their school and they left their uh, homes uh, because of the Nantinook. And that was the regional name for uh, roughly translates as Big Hairy Man. Uh, and it was this, she described this frightening figure that was a, a man beast that was killing people. And finally, the villagers said, you know, enough, we've lost enough people. En masse, they just all up and, and left. And they just Jeez. dropped everything and left town. So the place remains very mysterious. It's very difficult to access. Uh, you know, you can look on travel information for the region and and a lot of times it'll say you can get there by ATV or something but it, it really you can't you pretty much need to go in by uh, bush plane or by boat and uh, I tried a couple of different times to get there but weather conditions wouldn't allow uh, on some of my trips uh, I've, I've spoken to a number of people that have been to the site and they said that even today that it's, it's a very eerie experience to walk through this little village. And, and one person told me, he said, you know, I've been there and I was so unnerved. I felt like something was watching us the entire time. You mentioned the story of Harry Culp. Who is he? Who was he? Oh, boy, that's a good one, George. So in 1900, this gentleman named Harry D. Culp was a prospector in Alaska. Now, looking for his fortune, you know, looking to strike it rich. And Colt, uh, this, this incidentally, this entire tale comes from his own handwritten manuscript. He wrote the, the details of his, his experiences out, and they were lost for a long time. His daughter found them in the 1950s, 
she actually published the manuscript. It's a little booklet you can still get it sometimes. And, and it was titled The Strangest Story Ever Told. And when you read this thing, you think, wow, it kind of is, at least for Alaska. So uh, getting back to it, Harry B. Culp was a prospector. He joined up with three other guys, and they had a plan to, to look for a place to dig for their fortunes. Mm-hmm. And they'd heard these stories about there being gold in Thomas Bay. Now, they kind of grouped together in uh, Wrangell and elected one of their group to go out and do some initial prospecting to see if it was worth the trip. They send this guy out, uh, Colt calls him Charlie. They send Charlie out. They don't expect to see him, George, for about three months. But he comes back in a very short period. He walks in their cabin. He tosses down this huge chunk of cord. It's flecked with gold all over. These guys are naturally very, very excited. Charlie says, I'll tell you tomorrow. He, he goes to sleep. These guys, these poor guys have to wait, you know, all mm. night and the next day. So the next afternoon, Charlie finally sits down and he says, I'll tell you the whole story, but I need you to guys to do something. I need you to, to give me some money to catch the steamership that's coming through. I'm going to Seattle. I never want to hear about this place again. Wow. He, he was out. He was out. He says, I'm out. I'm never coming back to Alaska. Now, they agree, and he begins to tell them the story. He tells them about the story uh, about his encounter in Thomas Bay. He goes, he, he's looking around. You know, he's taking a canoe. He's going way out in the wild. He, he finds what appears to be a really rich vein of gold. He gets this chunk of quartz out, and as he's climbing around, he, he drops his rifle and basically breaks it. You know, it's, it's, um, it's fairly useless, uh, but he's carrying it anyway. He's trekking across, uh, getting his bearings and, and making, you know, notes of landmarks, and he wants to check some other areas to see how wide this vein may go. But then, George, he has this very disturbing experience, and he says it was the scare of his life and that, that he prays to God that he never has to go through anything like it again. And I, I'm actually going to read you the quote but so that it's done justice. Uh, this is what Charlie says. He says, Swarming up the ridge toward me from the lake were the most hideous creatures. I couldn't call them anything but devils, wow. as they were neither men nor monkeys, yet looked like both. They were entirely sexless, their bodies covered with long, coarse hair, except where the scabs and running sores had replaced it. Each one seemed to be reaching out for me and striving to be the first to get to me. The air was full of their cries, and the stench from their sores made me faint. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern, and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.